So Luke 20 opens up with Jesus in the temple preaching the gospel. Jesus preaching the gospel. Does that sound strange to you? What is the gospel, church? What is the gospel? Uh, can you answer that question in your minds? Uh, it's really, you could give a rather short answer to it. Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15. Do you know what it is? It is the good news of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The truth of which gives power to every word that Jesus spoke to every facet of our lives. So it touches every aspect of our lives. But in essence, it is the story of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Who preached the first gospel sermon? Might we respond, Peter, in Acts chapter 2? No. Actually, Jesus is here preaching the gospel. He preached the gospel through his ministry. If you go back before him, John was preaching the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Uh, behold the Lamb of God. If you go back before that, actually, Peter's the one who says Jesus first preached the gospel. To the ancients, to those of old, to the patriarchs, by the Holy Spirit in the mouths of the prophets. From the beginning, the gospel has been preached. From the time God first began to reveal that He would save men from their sins through the one whom He has ordained. And here He is in Jerusalem, the week of the Passion, the gospel event, preaching the gospel. Here is the sacrificial lamb preaching the gospel. The tension is so thick between he and his adversaries that you could cut it with a knife. It's like the humidity in July sometimes, and you can see it. And they are anticipating his coming. There is much chatter in Jerusalem about, about whether he'll come because they've posted wanted signs out for him by word of mouth throughout all the land that they are looking for him, and if anyone knows where he is, to turn him in. Well, I believe that to be a bluff. I think they knew where he was. There was never a time the man spoke where there weren't Pharisees around the perimeter casting stones at him. They knew where he was at all times, but they had set it up to make him to be a criminal. Nevertheless, as he came through the Jordan Valley on his last circuit through uh, uh, Judea and Perea, preaching in all those towns that he had sent the 70 out before him to prepare for. He even touched into Galilee and Samaria and was making his way down through the Jordan Valley, through Jericho. Now he has come up the mountain toward Jerusalem, but stopping at Bethphage, then Bethany, then the Mount of Olives. And now he's descending down into the valley and ready to go up into the gates, into the temple in the last week of his life. He is actually now in Luke 20 presented then as being in the temple daily teaching. He came into town on a donkey, the colt even, the foal of a donkey. He is sending a message of clarification about who he is. And as the, as the hype is ramped up that our king is coming to us, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, the son of David. 
And the leaders are enraged by this. As he comes in, he is setting the stage for his servant leadership in the kingdom, even as he sits on a donkey. Not some great entourage being carried in on men's shoulders, but coming in on a donkey. And his following will begin to diminish this week. To where you see at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, there's only about 120 disciples mentioned. Only. There are multitudes here coming into town. What happened to them? Well, he's clarifying more and more. And you remember, do you remember even to Pilate? When Pilate said, are you then the king of the Jews? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. And so, as he begins to unveil this, his enemies become emboldened. His discipleship begins to diminish. And as they try to catch him in his authority, who gave you this authority in the temple? Jesus, in his perfect style, breaks out in storytelling. And when he tells this parable that Tanner read of the wicked vine dressers, and it was heard and interpreted properly by the Jewish leaders, they said, certainly not. Certainly not. Just then, Jesus responded with a monumental statement of his deity. A monumental statement. He reaches back to Psalm 118, which they were very familiar with, and pulls verse 22, and he says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This parable, the parable of the wicked vine dressers, a certain man, a man of ability, carefully prepared the soil, the support structures, and planted the seeds to produce a grape vineyard. And he leased it, that is, he entrusted it into the care of others by a mutually beneficial binding contract. He leased it into their care. And the vine dressers were those who were contracted to care for it and share in the reward and the profit of the thing. They were to share in its produce. But he went to a far country for a long time, it seemed. But it was a long enough time that there should have been a crop produced. And it was far enough away that he sent a servant to go and to uh, reckon and account for the produce from the vine dressers and to taste of it and to bring some back to the owner to receive some of the glory from this vineyard. And so he sent a delegation and a servant came to them and said, let me have some of the produce. And they beat him and sent him away. And this happened three times until finally the owner said, I'll send my son who will come in my authority, in my name, and as the heir to this vineyard, and certainly they'll respect him, 
But he suffered an even more violent fate as he was dragged out of the vineyard and killed by this rebellious coup. Finally, the owner himself comes and with great power passes sweeping judgment on those men and gives the vineyard into the care of others. Into the care of others. And the Jewish leaders understood that he was speaking this parable against them and said, certainly not. Certainly you're wrong about this. They understood it. I want to ask you a question. Do we understand it? Do we understand it? Because this parable has meaning beyond that which was immediately applicable to the Jewish leaders of the day. Here's the interpretation of it as they would hear it. God purchased and planted a people and a fertile land and granted them the privilege of working with him in the noblest work of the world, and that is to bear fruits of righteousness by which they would become a beacon of light, attracting all the nations of the world to God. But those who were to act as protectors and shepherds to the people became, became corrupt. And when God sent the prophets, the servants, to demand an account and show the product of their hands, they treated them shamefully and sent them away. Which of the prophets did they not beat and kill? Finally, God sent his only son with all the authority of heaven who came in his name to receive the crop from their hands, but they killed him outside the vineyard in order to maintain power over God's field, over God's people. But in the end, they would be judged by the owner of this field themselves, by the owner of the vineyard, and the work of God's people would be given into the hands of the Gentiles. The Gentiles. Rod said it a little bit ago. <laughs> Most all of us are Gentiles, with few exceptions here. By descent, we are the Gentiles. But this chief cornerstone, let's talk about this first. They were infuriated when Jesus interpreted Psalm 118.22 to be himself. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You are rejecting me, the rock of ages, and I'm telling you that I am not only the rock, but I will become the rock upon which this kingdom of God, which shall never be destroyed, Daniel chapter 2, will be built. You see this temple here? Not one stone will be left upon another. This temple will be raised again in three days. Do you remember those sermons? Oh, they're all wheeling up here you know, now in their minds. They're becoming infuriated. It's not because they all don't believe for they said, we cannot deny that notable miracles are being done here. It was that they did not want to share the power over the people with the creator of this vineyard. They couldn't let it go. They took ownership of it. It was a rebellious coup. 
And that son that came in God's name was rejected by them and taken outside the city of Jerusalem and killed. Those who were supposed to be the tenders and the keepers of God's sheep led the way in crying out, crucify him, crucify him. The nation that would be the fruit bearers bringing all other nations into the acknowledgement and into the obedience to God. Some of those nations actually coming into obedience to God. At least various citizens of various nations submitting to that God. The leaders of God's own people rejected even the son that certainly they would respect. The foundation of God's kingdom is not material. Jesus is making that clear here. It is still not material. In fact, he said, if you want to build your lives, build them on my words. You will not be able to build your lives with the wealth and riches that you obtain in this life. You will be building on sand if you do that. You'll be, you'll be hearing my words, and when you do them, you'll be building your own foundation on top of the chief cornerstone. You'll become a living stone in this building, this temple, a holy temple wherein God dwells. You'll be participating in that. It's, it's not a foundation of theological legalism or liberalism. If we can only do better, if we can only do more, or if we can only break free from these demands, if we can only separate ourselves from God's restraints, legalism, binding where God has not bound, and liberalism, freeing where God has not freed, if the answer surely must be there. He said, no. The answer is in the gospel. The answer, answer is in what God provides for us to find Him and to build our lives upon. To find freedom, you must find Christ. He is the one who will set you all free. Christ is the one. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Son of Promise would, within five days of this, would within five days of this time of teaching this in the temple, be killed and within seven days become the resurrected Lord, laying the chief cornerstone upon which the kingdom will be built. The gospel was the greatest truth of their day. Jesus had been, as has all the prophets, calling attention to this momentous occasion that would happen in their city that on this week, at their hands, he's calling all people to understand that this is not just murder. In their hearts, it's counted as murder. They intentionally lied and wait for him, took him by force and put him on a tree. However, when he willingly, with the power of God, allowed himself to be bound, what we have now is God's demonstration of love in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While he could have overcome them with a great power, a word, or an army of disciples. He could have overcome them. He willingly went forth as prophesied 
from days of old, from the beginning, that he would lay down his life in an act of love, aside from which there is no greater, to be the propitiation, the atonement, the sacrifice for men's sins. He would offer himself to God on our behalf. What seemed like murder was a demonstration of God's love. It, it was a validation of the Father's love. Now you and I do not have to do anything to prove ourselves worthy enough for God to love us. Who could save me from this body of death, Paul said. Who could save me? I can't save myself. What I will to do, I don't do. And what I will not to do, I do. Thank God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank God He's provided. Thank God He's shown me my worth inherently by His grace. And I don't have to prove anything to Him, to anyone else. I don't have to merit anything. I don't have to seek salvation in any other. I don't have to find fulfillment in any person. Not even my wife, not my children, not my best friends, not my mother or father. It's found in Him alone. He is my all in all. My all-sufficiency in all areas of my life. He's my all in all. He is the one who gives us the gospel. And God demonstrated His love for us when He raised Him up from the dead. And He demonstrated His power over sin and over death. How do I know, God, that You're going to do this? I see that You love me, but are You able to overthrow the power of darkness? Are You able to give me life again in my dead spirit? When Jesus Christ came out of that tomb... A dead man made alive again. God said, I can raise the dead. I'll raise your dead soul to life again. If you turn to my son. The gospel is the key to life, church. It's the answer to sin. It's the answer. God answered our sin problem. Someone says, well, God created it. God didn't create our sin problem. God gave us free will and provided a solution for our poor judgment, for our lack of love, for our failure to recognize the power of God. Even His Godhead and deity, Paul said, recognized in nature, let alone when you pursue the path to know Him. And Paul said, He's not far from each one of you. If you seek Him, you'll find Him. If you ask for Him, He'll come to you. He'll open the door. He's not far away. And the Gospel is how we come back into the relationship we were created to enjoy. Receiving, reveling in, and, are you ready? Returning God's love to Him.
God, how could I ever show you how thankful I am that you have saved my soul from sin? I recognize that Jesus Christ is the one whom you sent, your son, into this field to find me and save me. How could, how could I repent? I can't work my way into heaven. You've provided the way for me. What can I do to return my love to you? Well, the parable of the vine dressers has relevance to us. We are the, the others. We're the others. Into whose hands he has committed the care of his field. Listen, God planted a vineyard. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. In fertile soil, Matthew 13, lift up your eyes. Behold, the harvest is white. Pray to God for more laborers. Pray that we can go out and reap a harvest. With the seeds of the gospel, Matthew chapter 8, which is the word of God, the gospel, in a large field, the world. The world is God's field. He leased it into the hands of a people who agreed not just to be takers, not just to say, I want you to save me. Thank you very much. I'll see you later. But who came into an agreement and said, I will bow before you as my Lord and Master, and I will return to you the glory which you have shared with me. I will partake of the fruits of righteousness found within this vineyard. I'll partake with my fellow laborers in the riches of God, Romans chapter 2. And I'll taste it and see that it's good, Hebrews chapter 6. But I also agreed to plant the seeds of my fruit as it matures. And within it, the germ that gave me life, I agreed to take it and plant it as we learned last week. In fields that God did not plant in places where he has not yet gone. But his faithful servants have seen opportunity. His faithful servants have seen people. His faithful servants have said, they are without the fruits of God. They do not know the riches of God. They do not know the joys of eternal life. And these others agreed to share the fruit of the labor of the vineyard, not just to taste it. And one day the son, the owner, will return to gather his harvest. What will he find his laborers doing? What will he find us, his church, doing? Who are the laborers but we who have tasted of the riches of God? Who are the laborers but we who have agreed to serve cheerfully in the vineyard of souls? Will we claim God's field by a rebellious coup and keep it to ourselves? Will we build a wall around it and not share the produce within and the growth of it with those who are without it outside? Let it never be so. Will we refuse to plant those seeds 
of this life-saving gospel and harvest a crop for him. In the words of the Jewish leaders, I say to you, let us say, certainly not. Certainly not. Where else did we hear those words? What shall we say, say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Paul said, Romans 6 verse 2, certainly not. Of course not. This isn't the end of the story. The baptistry is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of joy. It's the beginning of the joy of laboring in the greatest work in the world. We Christians should want to plant the seeds of this good news in the hearts of our children. Deep within our children's hearts. The seeds, the roots of the gospel within the hearts of our neighbors and co-workers and friends, within the hearts of our fellow citizens in the communities in which we live, within the hearts of Ohioans and Americans, our countrymen. And even as we have opportunity, and we do, within the hearts of those who are eager to hear that word in faraway places. The kingdom of God is within us. The seeds are here. Wherever I go, I have the ability to take a seed of the produce that has matured and grown in me and plant it in someone else. It's the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ and his death and burial and resurrection. In Jesus' day, the people were still expected to come to the church in Jerusalem for salvation. They would travel from all over the world and come to the holy city. But the resurrected Lord, the cornerstone, said, I want you to build this kingdom. Not by inviting everyone to come to the church, but to take the church to the world. We're switching methods. We're going out. We're going out. We have to take the message out and plant the seeds in the hearts of other men. So I charge you, church, you've heard the gospel this morning. If you haven't obeyed it, obey it. But if you haven't been planting, to plant seeds in the fields that are right near you and to build upon the chief cornerstone. He's coming back to receive a crop. What are you producing? Let's be about the Father's business. Let's build on the chief cornerstone. And let's stand and sing this song to God as Cody